I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership singer, trumpeter, composer, and producer Skip Martin, best known for his sensational work with one of the 1980s most prolific funk, dance, and R&B acts, the Mighty Daz Band. And if, as if that was not impressive enough, when things slowed down a bit for the Daz Band in the late 1980s, he recorded and performed with the legendary Cool and the Gang. Besides that, he also has released several of his own projects. What a renaissance man. Skip, so good to see you. How are you? Good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Where are you today? Today I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm working with uh, my music director, Tom Schumann. And, and um, we've been doing projects lately he and i do a lot of projects together so we were working on a project for a young man uh, named jason hanner and we are putting some things together for that and it's uh, i can't go into a whole lot of detail on it but it's amazing and um then tom and i just finished up my first gospel cd called god will find you with 10 songs it's it came out amazing i'm so blessed and, and um and, uh, and thank you very much for, for the kudos and the introduction. Um, sometimes I don't even know it's me that you're talking about. I'm like, wow, really? Because <laughs> I've been doing this for so long. You know, it's come second nature. I have a manager um, that works with me in Asia and Japan. And recently she just set up a Wikipedia, Wikipedia for me. So I would have it in, in Japanese and all of those things. And when I looked at this thing, Scott, I was like, who is this guy? Because I'm like, really? So I am celebrating um, right now this project that this God will find you. Yeah, I think it's my 64th CD. Wow. I'm like, where'd the time go? How did I even get that far? But she had them all laid out, all documented, all chronologically listed and all this stuff. So I'm really fortunate. And, you know, my thing was just God gave me a blessing. And from day one, seven years old, was when I made a decision. I was in riding in a Dodge Rambler with my grandmother and grandfather. And Nat King Cole had passed away. And they were playing Unforgettable, that's what you are. And when I heard it, I said, wow, Nana, that's what I'm going to do. Because it sounded like the man was right there in the car with us. And so I knew that he was gone, and that's what I wanted for my life. I said, I want to do something that when I leave here, people will still feel me like I'm still here. And that's been my quest. Wow. Well, thank you so much for it, because we've enjoyed all the great music you've given us through the years thank you yeah so nat king cole kind of gave you the bug uh how did uh things sort of develop from there and how'd you get into the trumpet well um the trumpet came about four years later when i was 11 because i had started playing the guitar and i was playing like my mom would help me out and give me a guitar i had a toy guitar i started with it had that little wind-up thing on the bottom, ding, 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 but it had three strings on it. So I started picking out notes and melodies on the string. And one day my mom, after one of those teacher parties that they had at the house, 
she got up in the morning. I left my little guitar on the floor. She walked in the kitchen and crushed it. So it was gone. <laughs> so she went and bought me a little bigger guitar. And I played on that for a while. And then one day she just wanted to give me some love and support as a single mom. She had put a little money away here and there and bought me a real acoustical catgut string Spanish guitar. And I started playing flamenco and but there was no hip stuff to it. So when I was 11, I got into band class and they had music orientation. That's where they bring in all the instruments. First, they brought in the trombone. The trombone had a big old mouthpiece with a long slide and a big bell. And I looked at that mouthpiece. I said, man. That mouthpiece is too big. I'll never be able to play that. And the next instrument they brought in was a saxophone. The saxophone was really cool. It was like a curvy S. And it had buttons going up both sides of it, all up and down, buttons everywhere. I looked at that thing. I said, that's too many buttons. It'll take me forever to learn how to play that thing. Then they brought in a trumpet. The trumpet had a small mouthpiece. And three buttons. I said, Poof, there it is. There's my instrument. It'll be easy. Piece of cake. <laughs> I didn't know, however, it'd be one of the most difficult ones to play. But that's how I settled in on playing trumpet. And, uh, you know, I never considered myself to be uh, uh, great at it or, you know, uh, supernatural at it, like, you know, uh, Arturo Sandoval or Miles Davis or this and that. But I learned how to sing through my trumpet, and that's been my signature. So how old were you when you first sort of got with a group that was trying to do contemporary music? And My first professional band, I was 15 years old. And they were out of Sacramento, California, called East Wind Band. As a matter of fact, on the 12th of, I think it's the 12th of October, I'm going back to Sacramento to play a 40th year anniversary reunion show with East Wind Band. And I'm just coming in to play with the guys because I'm still in touch with them. We're like brothers and, you know, bands become your extended family. You spend more time with them than you do your family. So um, after 40 something years, we are going back and we're going to play together. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be cool. So back in the day, I'm not sure geographically, I know it's generally the same part of the country. Did you cross paths with any of the confunction guys? You know what? I drove right past them chasing my dreams and went to San Jose, the next big city. Had I run into them, history might have been different. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it would have been different because they still had two guys that were the lead guys of the band, I'd probably have been kicked to the curb because they were both Scorpios. And it was hard enough going into the dad's band and the leader was a Scorpio as, two, as well. So at least there was only one versus two. <laughs> 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 and I made it happen. So you came to the uh, dad's band, I'm guessing probably around 79 because you were on the 1980 record. Yeah. Um, how, did, how did that happen? And that was at a time when they were going through a major transition from Kinsman Daz to Daz Band, changing labels, all that mm -hmm. stuff. What transpired around then, and how did you become a center of it? Well, well, um, 
I had gotten, after I'd been in this one group I was just telling you about, East Wind Band, when the band decided to break up, and I started playing professionally at 15. So when I was 19, and I played with them for four years, so when I was 19, some of the guys in the band were getting married, and some were going off to college, and the band was just kind of breaking up. So I've been left with all of this bug on me, and I still wanted to play. So I left home, and I went to uh, San Jose, which was the next big city where my uncle lived. And I drove right past Felton and Michael in Vacaville or Vallejo, and I went straight to San Jose. Got in every band I could get in, and I ran into this one group called Mighty Generation from Youngstown, Ohio. I had been in San Jose three months. I played in every band I could get in. I was, must have played in three or four or five bands. And then I ran into these guys from Youngstown, Ohio, called Mighty Generation, and we wore hot pants with leggings from the knee down. We played Parliament Funkadelic. George Clinton, and this was the Chitlin Circuit. The Chitlin Circuit meant we made $20 a night per man, and 10 of those dollars went to the community bag of weed, and that's how we were living. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh yeah, we were swing down, sweet cherry stop, and let me ride. We were doing all that kind of stuff. So, they horned me, and uh, I got to be in the band, and we went up to Canada for the first time. We got to Canada, we got to the custom officer in the border, and there were eight brothers and one white boy named Blue. He was our sound man in a Dodge van. When we pulled up in the border, custom officer comes up and he goes, are you guys a band? The leader of the band, his name was Kool-Aid. He said, yes, sir, we are a band. We're a funk band. And the guy goes, funk? We, we play Parliament Funkadelic. And the guy goes, flashlight, dun, 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 dun. Flashlight. He said, yeah, I know that band. He goes, you want to get out of the band? We want to check out your band. And we had two guys in the band that didn't even smoke, drink, or anything. And you can see P-Trails. They were walking out of the out of the van. Nobody's going to check us. We got to call Western Union and get our parents to send us some money to get us out of jail because somebody's going to jail. And so we sat there, and this guy, he looked in the band. He didn't see anything, no paraphernalia, no nothing. And so then he says, well, this is what I'm going to do. He says, I don't see anything, but hey, Greg, go get Daisy. Daisy was their beige, one-and-a-half-year-old Cocker Spaniel drug dog. Go find it, Daisy. They bring Daisy in. Daisy jumps up in the van. He just, she's just, whoa, 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 whoa. She's just barking and alarming. Whoa, 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 whoa. She, but she doesn't find any seeds. She doesn't find any roaches, no pipes, no paraphernalia, no nothing. And she's like, he's like, whoa, whoa. And it seemed like an eternity. We were standing out in the broad daylight in the sun. And then, then the guy says, well, we looked, it seemed like forever, and we looked back in the van, and it looked like Daisy was getting a contact high because Daisy was on her back playing with a blanket. So I'm like, and the guy was so mad, he said, come on out of there, Daisy. Come out of here. Okay, you guys can go on your way. Come here, Daisy. And he took Daisy, poor Daisy, took Daisy on and went on their way. I got in the shotgun seat, and the culprit who had it was still my friend today, Clarence Ross. And we started driving. We drove about 10 clicks down the road. I said, Clarence, who got the bag of weed? He said, I, I got it. I said, how do you have it? They checked everything we had in our pocket, everything. He said, I put that motherfucker on the top of the van in plain sight. I thought that motherfucking dog was going to lose his motherfucking mind. And we rolled up into Canada with the fattest sweep in our year uh, and laughed our butts off. So the moral to that story is, if you got to hide, sometimes it's best to hide. In plain sight. 
And that's one of the stories in my new book that I have called Fables of a Paid Piper. So from there, I went from there to Youngstown, Ohio, and ended up opening for Kinsman Dads in Ohio. And this was after a three-year stint of being Parliament Funkadelic. And I was done with that. I was about ready to go back home and start over because it was like a no-go-nowhere type of thing, and I wanted to go somewhere. So we opened up for the for Kinsman Dads, and I looked at the band, and the band looked... I, I loved the sound of the band, but they were looked fragmented, and like they were missing pieces and this and that. So the guys in the band, somebody had talked to the owner of the club to tell them, the, the Kinsman Dads, to look at me. And then uh, somebody else said the same thing. And then I just took it upon myself. After the show was over, I went over to Kinsman Dads. I said, hey, I'm 20 years old. I'm like, uh, you looking for a trumpet player? Well, I'm your man. And I was 20. And Bobby Harris just started laughing, the leader of the dad's band. And then he came back and picked me up about two weeks later. And that's where history began with us in the dad's band. We changed the name from Kinsman Dad to the dad's band. And they had me singing most of the new demos for the dad's band. And the manager that we had, his name was Joe Simone at the time. He worked for Northern One Stop, and he, he sold records to all the mom-and-pop stores around the country. So we had a whole warehouse full of records, which was, by the way, that's how we got into Motown, not because they wanted to sign us, but because Joe was so powerful with what he was doing that they couldn't fight against him. He had all the mom-and-pop stores in his corner. He had all the distributors. He was... Uh, 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 Nam uh, uh, executive. I mean, he was just on air, everything, so they had to let us in. Plus, we had a hit record, and we were playing so hard. He played us. He paid us at that time in the seventies. He paid us two hundred fifty dollars a piece, and there were about eight, nine, ten of us for a whole year to practice from eight in the morning till five at night. We didn't even do a concert for a year. But when we did do the concert, we were so nat but tight that people just would let us come on and just do our show, wouldn't say nothing. The other folks would start shaking in their boots when we got there because our stuff was tight. And he dressed us, look, he wanted us to look like the Temptations with instruments. So we dressed with suits, Europa suits and, and Maori shoes and and... Um, what were those white shoes? They had these shoes. I can't remember like, off the top of my name, but there was a dancing shoe. Um, and, we, and we were all wearing this and we're looking clean and what have you. A bunch of look, good-looking guys that could play, that could sing, that could dance. And then our manager, Joe, said, okay, now before you guys hit the stage, here goes three bottles of this cologne. I want you guys to douse yourself in the cologne because I want the ladies to smell you four rows out. <laughs> <laughs> so not only were we dancing, singing, and playing, but we smelled good too. And that went a long way. They sent us to all the mom and pop stores personally up close. And we went there and talked to the ladies and, and talked to the owners and shook hands and this. And that. I mean, we didn't like ground roots uh, um, politics, like they'd run in for governor or something. 
We <laughs> did that everywhere we could. And it paid off because people knew who we were. And once our, once our song, Red Whip, finally came out after our third album, because uh, Motown was going to drop us, and uh, they didn't want us to use the same producer we had been using, which was a guy named Reggie Andrews, who teaches, taught school at, at uh, 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 oh my God, taught school, at, I'm sorry, I'm trying to get it called, taught school at uh, Watt, Watt High School in Los Angeles. And he was a great teacher there, a great mentor there. So that's how I got started, and I ended up recording nine albums with with Dazzle. Yeah. So how did you know when you first started? I noticed you were doing background vocals and more of the trumpet. How was it that you were able to come forward more as a vocalist and be more prominent within the band? Well. When I first, the first album that I did with Daz Band was called Invitation to Love. And I sang half of the, the songs. The others, I, I played trumpet on everything when we recorded. But I was singing half the songs. And this was because it was a transition from Kinsman Daz to the Daz Band. And we already had a lead vocalist named Kenny Pettis, who I didn't want to step on his feet. As a matter of fact, I learned a lot from Kenny Pettis. I tell him that to this day. I learned learned a lot from him. He had swagger, he had style, he had vibe, and he taught me a lot. So um, we kind of shared the leads. But the audience and our fans, our audience started uh, gravitating toward what, what I was doing. And my manager, Joe Simone, he took notice of that and started putting more, me more forefront. So my trumpet ended up being on the stand in concert. And I was singing most of the songs. Who would you say were your biggest influences, you know, as part of the Daz band? You know, who were you guys emulating? You know, Earth, Wind & Fire a little bit? Or who was out there that you were like, we want to be like that or better than that? Uh, uh, we were listening to Return to Forever, Yellow Jackets. Temptations, Four Tops. We were like, a, uh, we were a cross between jazz and dance music. So that's what we were doing. We were crossing that field. Matter of fact, that when we dropped off the Kinsman from Daz, Daz stands for or meant danceable jazz. And that's what we were trying to do. Did you bring some of that P-Funk influence with you from your other experience? Uh, a little bit. And you know what? It's very, um, um, it's interesting how life is because after I started off with that as a foundation, later on in my career, 30 years later, I end up working with, I'm sorry, they're trying to call me. I end up working with, George Clinton and writing a song with George Clinton with the Daz band. Doing a song called Ain't Nothing But a Jam, y'all. And then knowing George and getting a chance to be on tour and playing shows with George. He lets me come out and play trumpet solos and we, we did videos together. And so after all of this was just a dream and a fantasy, 
where it started. I ended up know, actually knowing the man, and, and we have a relationship. Well, isn't that something? It's a blessing. <laughs> and what, what uh, surprised you most about George after you met him? He's a lyrical annihilator. <laughs> this guy, as old as he is, he can out-rap, he can out-write, he can out come up with verses and what have you on any young guy out there you've ever seen. He is, and he calls himself the lyrical annihilator, and that's what he is. Because, I mean, he's just crazy with it. He's a genius with, you know, the words, fish better be glad you don't use booty for a bait. There's no more balling and stalling, you don't hesitate. Plenty mini keys on maximum booty, maximum booties do your duty. Booty, see booty, do less on, take a summer swim. Mm. <laughs> I love that album. The awesome power of, of a fully operational mothership right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when Let a Whip hit, how did that change your life? Um, it didn't Im immediately. Well, it did kind of and it didn't. One, fame-wise, it lifted everything and put us on the map. Um, financially, I was very frustrated because I thought when you had a hit record, you were supposed to be rich and famous. I just had fame and no riches. And um, as much as the song, the song was written by Reggie Andrews and Andrew Chancellor. But the other guys, we had, had some pieces in that as well, like the bridge, uh, no time to lose, and you, all of that came off the top of my head. The Whippet Baby was a line that the guitar played. Don't knock them down, don't knock them down, don't knock them down, don't knock them down. So we made baby, don't just whip it right and don't just But I also learned something. You know, Fame is a double-edged sword. The people closest to you pay the biggest price for your success. So that meant the people that were closest to me, like my Let's get to see you. And sometimes they can misinterpret that you don't care about them anymore. So that's one of the things you have to adapt to along with success. I think with that album, though, Kick it, uh, Keep It Live, that the group really kind of found its niche in terms of its sound, you know, kind of a bright, catchy, funky, punchy type of sound. Yes, we did do that. We also had, we also had beautiful ballads. A lot of beautiful ballads, and the ballads played more in the in the East Coast and the Midwest than they did on the West Coast. You know, the, today they still ask us for songs like "Knock Knock" and "Heartbeat" and "Don't Gamble," so we play those in the shows. But on the West Coast, they were more familiar with "Joystick" and "Keep It Live" and "Let It All Blow" and "Let It Whip." You know, American Bandstand was "Let It Whip." But we did Soul Train, I think we did Soul Train six times. 
and um, or maybe three times, but we did two different songs each time we were there. And um, some of them were ballads, some of them were dance songs, Hot Spot, Keep It Live, Don't Gamble, Let It Whip, Joystick. We did all of those. Matter of fact, I was very fortunate because I played Soul Train 12 times total. Because I did wow. it six times with Cool in the Gang. I did. I was on Soul Train so often that when we got on there with Cool in the Gang, Don Cornelius, after we got done doing this song called Raindrops that we had done, Don Cornelius walks down the line, you know, to introduce the guys in the band. And I was all the way at the end. He walks past Cool and everybody else and comes to me. And he says, well, um, young man, uh, haven't I seen you here before? <laughs> And I'm just getting into the band. I've only been in there less than a year. I'm like, uh, I'm like, oh, I'm saying to myself, man, don't get me fired. I just got here, you know. And uh, he's like, I'm like, oh yeah, I have been here before. He said, well, yeah, you, you had this thing. What was that thing you used to do? Uh, what was that thing? And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, that's it. And then walked back down the line and got the cool with everybody else. I was like, oh, don't. Oh. <laughs> Twelve times. That might be a record. I think. <laughs> I was like, wow. So that was a blessing. I got to tell you, my, my personal two favorite um, jazz band tracks, and I grew up on the West Coast, so I got the full helping of the uh, up-tempo stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, on the one for fun and let it all blow. Right. Those, those two, man. You know, because I'm a, a funkaholic, so. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you tell me anything about those two tracks? What went into those? Oh, I really, I really loved it. Um, we were trying to be a little cutting edge with on the one for fun. Um, it was kind of different because they were breaking up the sound that we had with my vocals, and they were just doing. We were there introducing other guys in that sound: Pierre Demud and uh, Keith Harrison, who I went and got from a group called Faisal. He was he had sung this song called "Riding High." That was that was Keith singing that high part, and I went and got Keith and brought him to the Daz band, and uh, so we were changing some things. Let it all blow. I loved it because it was that electronic thing. Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to. I was trying to. I loved doing the, the let it all blow because it gives us a chance to play our horns. And do his soloing and what have you, and it was a it was a good combination of funk and jazz, mm -hmm. you know, and sticking it. We had a good time. I used to also like that song, "To the Roof," mm. you know. That one always took me to the roof. And we had a song called "Old School," um, "Old School Rules," something like that. Oh, straight out of school, straight out of straight out of school. To the roof is a good house party track. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I had a good time. And Let It All Blow, I mean, that was really interesting and the sounds and percussion going on in that one. Yeah. We had Polino da Costa at that time playing percussion with us. And, and it was really cool. You know, a really good uh, thing. Narada uh, uh, Walden would come in and practice with us and play with us with his band. And um, that was a good time. And the 12-inch singles were big then, too, and they were some really yes. cool remixes of yes, those tracks. Yes, they did. Yes. 
You can still get those in Japan. They have the remix albums and CDs. I mean, albums, the discs, they still do it over there. And were you doing some music videos at that time also? Well, actually, we were on the crux of music videos and blackface as being on music videos. Because the issue was MTV would only put white faces on the videos at that time. Thus, the creation of BET. Because they weren't putting any black faces on there. The only, white, only black faces that got on there that opened up the door for us, one was Rick James did Super Freak. And they couldn't resist it, and they put Super Freak on MTV. The other one was Michael Jackson. When Michael Jackson came on there, I think it was just before Thriller. When Michael Jackson came on there, it might have been Billie Jean or something like that. And then that kind of started uh, changing the way MTV was viewing colors and people. So when we did our first video, we didn't even have a, a Let It Whip primary video because they weren't going to play us on, on the TV. The only thing we did was we went to the, what's it called? The, uh, it's a place in Los Angeles. Oh, the Fox Theater. We did a show at the Fox Theater and filmed it and made a video, which you can now see on YouTube, which was pre-video time. Matter of fact, that's what made us write a song. Bobby Harris wrote the lyrics to Joysticks on the next album because the video games were just coming out. They had Pac-Man, they had Space Invaders, they had Centipede. Those were the three video games they had. And... uh one day we came back to Cleveland from a gig, and Bobby's uh, the Chicago Bulls beat the uh, Cleveland Cavaliers in the playoffs for the basketball. And this one guy from from uh, the Bulls hit this three pointer or whatever that just took the game over. And he was a seven footer standing over a video game playing. And Bobby says, "Man." You look like that's a toy, man. How you even work that thing? He said, man, you, you just got to know how to work the joystick. You just got to know how to work, how to work the joystick. And Bobby got an idea from that. Came back home because we used everything with a sexual entente. You yeah. cannot. <laughs> you cannot. Back then, you couldn't say certain things. So you had to have double meaning for what you were saying. Let it whip had sexual content. Joystick had sexual content. Let it all blow had sexual content. Keep it live. I mean, just uh, everything had a little sexual contentation to it, but we had to do it that way and be slick. So that's why we come turn me on, get it on. Baby, I'm your joystick. That's all the things that you do to a video game and to your wife. <laughs> you know, so, so that's what made us come up with those kind of phrases. What, what was it like in the studio for the Daz Band at their peak? You know, if I was able to sit in, what was that vibe like? It was really great because one of the things I will never forget about the Daz Band is that it was the best collection of talented musicians I had ever seen in my life. I mean, every person in the band was special. There was no dead weight. Everybody could bring it and top level bringing it. The drums, 
Ike Wiley was as good as anyone out there. On base, there were so few like like Michael Wiley. You know, the vocals were crazy vocals. You know, the the keyboard, Steve Cox was great on keyboard. You know, it just, you know, Bobby as a band leader and putting people together, you know, he was great in doing that. So we had a lot of very talented people. Pierre DeMud, he was not as one of the talented, most talented. He, he played trumpet and he sang the high stuff. But Pierre had a style and grace about him. He was our spark plug. When we got out and danced, he had one of the biggest smile and crack, crack, <laughs> high, killing it every time. You know, so everybody had something that was amazing. You know, so that's what made me really enjoy the time that we did recording, because always something magical would happen, you know, in a session. It was not a time that there wouldn't something make you go, oh, that was killer, every time. What was your most unforgettable experience being part of that group? Well, I mean, I guess I'd have to say the Grammy, winning the Grammy Award. I mean, that's, you can never forget that. And the first time that happens to you, it's like it stays in your mind forever. And I really was not trying to be excited or uh, I didn't want my heart broken. I was just glad to be nominated. You know, so I was really not trying to pay attention to it. And we were sitting there talking to the whispers. We're sitting behind us at the Biltmore Hotel. And Miles Davis was walking through the place with headphones on and stuff, listening to jazz. And all these great people were just doing their thing. Oh, the first time I've been around a whole room of all these great people I grew up with, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Before all the cameras and everything started, our category was coming up. And when they went to announce it, I didn't even want to hear it. I just was talking to the whispers. Now, you know what? And then this is what we were doing. And then we were going to go over here. And they're like... And the winners for best performance by a group or duo. And I'm like, and you know what? And then the guy said, the Daz band. And I'm still talking, you know what? And then we were going to go, and well, I think it was Michael Cooper or somebody in the da- uh, behind me in the whispers, maybe. And they looked at me and I said, Skip, you guys won. And we're all sitting in the middle of the hotel, in the middle of the seats. And it wasn't full yet. You know, still a lot of open seats. And we were just sitting there. And they said, what? We won? Turn around, look at the stage. And they said, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's a tie. It's a tie between the Daz Band for Let It Whip and Earth, Wind, and Fire for Serpentine Fire. Both of you come on up here and get your Grammy Award. What well, Serpentine Fire was from 77. Serpentine, that's, I think that's what it was, Serpentine Fire. Mm. You, you're a permissionado. It was something like that. What it was the same year, 82, as Jazz Band. I'll have to look up what Earth, Wind & Fire, probably like um, gr- uh, gr- um, Group Tonight. Yeah, something like that. Maybe it was Group Tonight. I don't know, but it was a song with, the, with them. I thought it was Serpentine Fire. I can, that's what I remembered. So at any rate, that's what they did. And we both started, and, and 
the jazz band, since we were in the middle of the auditorium, in the middle of the seats, we started, we had these black suits, black Europa suits with red Maori shoes and red ties. <laughs> and we started walking over the seats to the front of the stage. We walked across, must have been 100 seats, straight down the middle of the auditorium to the front of the stage. Got up on the stage and everybody's with, no, number one, you know, all that stuff. It was a great, great moment. And uh, and every great moment is a bittersweet type scenario. Because after we won that and celebrated and all of that, I know I came back home. We all came back home to Cleveland. And we're at Cleveland Hopkins Airport. This is in February. That's when they do the Grammys. There was about a foot, two, a foot or two of snow on the ground in Cleveland. When I got to the airport, I was looking for my wife. My childhood sweetheart. And everybody was there. There were ladies there in rabbit coats, Scott. They had rabbit coats with negligees underneath them. And you come home and they're like, hi, you want to ride home? I'm like, no, I'm waiting for my <laughs> wife. That's all right. Thank you very much. That happened several times before I actually got to a payphone and called my wife because she was nowhere around. Everybody else's family was there. They were there waiting on them and this and that to congratulate them. So I got to the payphone. I called my wife. I said, baby, we won. She said, I heard. I said, baby, how come you not come? How come you didn't come down here? She said, in one phrase, it changed our whole relationship. She said, I wasn't coming down here in all that mess. So tonight I was number one in the world. But to the, my number one person, it was described as mess. And I made a different direction from that point on. Hmm. Well, that's a different perspective. Yes. <laughs> True story. Wow.